pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that your kingdom is eternal and that we are part of that kingdom as your children, as your co-workers, as your inheritors. Lord, we pray that this day as we consider your word and as your word speaks to us, that we'd open our hearts, we'd open our minds to hear the word. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit to enable us to hear and to understand and to put into practice. These things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Many years ago, a young man of 21 years of age was out taking a walk. Undoubtedly, he was contemplating the exciting life of law and legal matters, which he thought would become his occupation. To his family's great joy and satisfaction, this young man had just completed his Master of Arts degree, and he was now prepared to begin his study of law, a course of study that would certainly lead him to affluence, acceptance, and financial ease within his lifetime. But then a very frightening thing happened. While this man was walking along on his regular afternoon stroll, a bolt of lightning flashed beside him, knocking him off his feet. In his terror and fear of imminent death, this devout Catholic boy called on St. Anne for help. And he made a vow that he would become a monk if he could only live. Less than 30 days later, this young man entered a monastery of the Augustinians. Sure, it was a drastic step. It was a change of plan which the young man had not anticipated. But he had been raised in the fear of God and in the vivid certainty of judgment of heaven and of hell. Becoming a monk was the only way that this young man thought that hell could be avoided and that heaven could be earned. And so on the integrity of his vow to God, this young man entered a monastery. But he was soon disappointed. Despite all his efforts, despite all his works, this young man was plagued by an overwhelming sense of his own unholiness, of his inability to please and appease God with his life. Because of his earlier training and his keen intellect, the young man was pressed into service as a professor. He became a professor of biblical literature at a famous university. It was while he was lecturing on the book of Romans that the true light of the gospel seemed to dawn within him. In Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we want to read the words that this young man read, which revolutionized his life. In Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we read the words of Paul. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jews, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Armed with the salvific truth of this statement, that justification is by faith alone. This young man, whom we know by the name of Martin Luther, challenged the beliefs of the reigning Roman Catholic Church. And he brought to birth a new understanding of the truly good news of Jesus Christ. According to the church calendar, this is Reformation Week. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses of protest 
upon the door of the Wittenberg Church. And so today, I would like for us to look at the pivotal verse in Romans, which sparked the church into a reformation. And I pray that we will allow a similar joy and a similar freedom and the same kind of reform to spring to action within our own lives. In Romans 1.17, Paul writes, For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. What does this phrase, the righteous will live by faith, really mean? Who are the righteous? Who can truly be righteous? Have you ever stopped and thought about this? Who are the righteous? You know, it seems like everyone wants to be right. Admitting wrong or admitting error is not something which many people seem willing to do. It seems to be an innate human characteristic to want to be right. Unfortunately, this same desire to be right often causes us to try to prove that someone else is always wrong. Have you ever noticed how that works? I saw a funny t-shirt this summer. You might know that there's an old philosophical argument that asks the question, if a tree falls over in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it make any sound? Well, the basis of this philosophy is that reality is intimately tied to perception. Well, the t-shirt that I read picked up the theme of this philosophical question, but it gave it a little twist. The t-shirt read, if a man talks in the forest and his wife is, there not to he is not there to hear him, is he still wrong? Well, we all seem to have an inherent desire to be right. And this inner drive to be right sometimes causes us to try to make others be wrong. Of course, at other times, this inner drive to be right causes us to try to rationalize everything that we do. We always seem to be trying to justify our actions. We want to prove ourselves right. But when you really get down to it, who is really righteous? The good news that we read in this passage from Romans is that the righteous will live. That's great news, isn't it? The righteous will live. What this means is that the person who has no fault, the person who has only made right decisions, the one who has only displayed the right attitudes, the one who always performs correctly with the right actions, that person will live. But who is that person? The truth is, that person is no one. Romans 3.10 reminds us of the truth that each of us already knows deep down inside of ourselves. There is no one righteous, not even one. And so the call for righteousness seems to ring out like a call to arms. And people everywhere, past and present, set out to be the best people that they can be. Everyone seems to cherish the hope that they can earn life with their actions and with their works. But it is impossible. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The painful fact is that the more we work and the more we try to justify ourselves, the more we become aware of our failure. It's like the little cartoon character says, the harder I try, the behinder I get. There is no one righteous, not even one.
And so suddenly, the promise of life to the righteous seems like an empty promise. Sure, everyone wants to live. This was the problem that the Apostle Paul had grappled with. Paul tells us in his letters that he had tried to live the righteous life. As a Jew, he had fulfilled every, every requirement. He had left nothing unfinished. If anyone was able to accomplish the righteous life, certainly Paul must have had the best chance. But in his own power, Paul failed. Paul talks about his failure to live the righteous life by his own power in Romans chapter 7. Paul writes, So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Who of us has not felt this same frustration? Paul's words sound and feel very familiar, don't they? But Paul is not the only one who had tried to live the righteous life in his own strength. Martin Luther had also tried to live the righteous life. Conscious of his own sin and unrighteousness, Luther entered the very strictest of monasteries. Now we have to realize that there were lots of monasteries that Luther could have chosen to enter. But he chose an Augustinian monastery, which was the strictest of the strict. There he tried to make himself acceptable to God and to earn the salvation of his soul. He mortified his body. He fasted, sometimes for days on end and without a morsel of food. He gave himself to prayer and to vigils that went far beyond those which were required by the strict orders of his monastic order. He went to confession, often daily and for hours at a time. Nonetheless, he was still haunted by the truth of his unworthiness and unrighteousness before God. And even today, you and I often find ourselves grappling with the righteous life, trying our hardest to earn the pleasure and the good favor of our Heavenly Father. By the way, what are you doing to earn your salvation? Are you going to church thinking that God will be impressed by your attendance? Are you giving an offering feeling as if you've earned God's attention? Or perhaps you've come to Nazarene Bible College in order to, to convince God of your worthiness. Are you using one of your talents, thinking that God is lucky to have you around? Well, be honest with yourself. No one is righteous. Not even one. Not me. Not even you. The promise of life to the righteous seems like an empty promise because no one of his own power can be righteous. No one is righteous enough to earn their salvation. And that is precisely the reason why God sent his son Jesus. Our passage today says, For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. The righteous will live. How? How? By faith. By faith. Actually, I'm not so happy with the way that this well-known verse is translated into English. In English, this verse reads, the righteous will live by faith. The way it's translated here, it sounds as if the righteous will live and that faith is some kind of secondary element to the whole equation. 
The righteous will live. Oh, oh yeah, I almost forgot. By faith. It almost sounds like the by faith part is an afterthought that Paul just kind of threw in at the last minute. It sounds good, so he threw it in. Now, if you've ever studied Greek, then you know that the word order of Greek is usually not as significant as the word order in English. As a matter of fact, the word order of Greek really does not affect the translation of most Greek sentences into English at all. And so on the one hand, we have to recognize that word order in Greek does not really play much of a role at all in the translation of a text into English. But word order does reveal emphasis and significance within the Greek language. When we look at Romans 1.17, I believe that we find an important emphasis that Paul is placing into these words. In the Greek word order, this verse is not written as the righteous will live by faith. Rather, in the Greek, this verse reads literally this way. The righteous by faith will live. The righteous by faith will live. Do you hear the difference? Paul is telling us that apart from faith, there is no one righteous. No one can earn his own righteousness. It is only by faith. It's by faith from first to last. This is the marvelous discovery that Martin Luther made 488 years ago. It is the same discovery that Paul made almost 2,000 years ago. And it must be the same discovery that we make today. Only by faith can we be made righteous. There's a legend about Martin Luther that during a serious illness, the devil visited his room. And so while Luther was lying sick and feverish in bed, the evil one entered into Luther's sick room. With a look of sadistic triumph, the devil began to unroll a large and heavy scroll which he carried in his arms. As the fiend threw one end of the scroll on the floor, it slowly unwound itself before Luther's eyes. Luther looked at the words of the scroll and read the long and fearful record of his own sins, enumerated one by one. His stout heart trembled before the ghastly and condemning roll. But suddenly, as strange it might seem, it flashed into Luther's mind that there was one thing not written there. He cried aloud, one thing you have forgotten. The rest is all true. All that you have written here is terribly and undeniably true. But one thing you have forgotten. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, purifies us from all sin. This is the good news of the gospel. It is true that no one is righteous. But God gave his son, Jesus. Through faith in him, we can be made righteous. Faith in Christ is more than just an intellectual assent. The faith which is counted as righteousness is not something which you just believe off the top of your head. No, faith is the grateful, wholehearted response of one's entire being to the love of God in Christ Jesus. Faith is the placement of our full confidence in God instead of in ourselves. This kind of faith also includes repentance. When we come to true faith in God, when we come to a full confidence in God's limitless power, we also become aware of our own lack of righteousness. We become aware of our own hopelessness and despair of ever really being righteous by our own efforts. True faith in God includes repentance. If we trust in God completely, all trust in our own ability and in our own power is shut out.
For we trust in God alone. Anything else is not faith. But by faith, we can be righteous. By faith in the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can be righteous. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why Jesus came. Jesus came and died for our sins and was raised back again by his Father so that we could be made righteous. Not that we could just seem to be righteous, but Christ died and was raised again so we can actually become righteous. But it is a righteousness that is only by faith. It is only by faith in him that we can become righteous. But the greatest news is yet to come. What is the promise that we read about in this verse? What is there to be gained by righteousness? Romans 1.17 tells us, the righteous by faith will live. Will live. The promise is life. I really like the way that Paul tells us about the promise of God in this passage. Here in verses 16 and 17, Paul gives us both aspects of the promise. He gives us both the negative and the positive sides of the life of faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. Salvation. Paul first talks about salvation. Did you know that the term salvation is actually the negative aspect of God's promise? By salvation, Paul means that we are saved from something. Salvation means that something will not happen to us. Salvation means that we will not die spiritually. It means that we will be saved from condemnation. It means that we will be saved from hell and from punishment and death. Praise God for salvation. But as great as salvation is, it is actually the negative aspect of what God has done for us in Christ. But in verse 17, Paul gives us the positive aspect of God's promise. By faith in Jesus Christ, we not only receive salvation, but we receive life. The righteous by faith will live. Salvation is not only a promise that saves us from something, it is something which we are saved to. We are saved to freedom. We are saved to life. When we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, we are set free from our past. You know, every one of us has made mistakes and errors and even sins in the past that haunt us. Regardless of how good we try to act or how much we try to make up for our wrongs in the past, they just seem to linger there, filling us with guilt and with shame. Christ can set us free from our past. By faith in Him, He will cleanse your heart and forgive you even of your past. The good news is that you can have life despite your past. You know, one of the most destructive lies that Satan ever gives is the lie that causes us to think that our past is too sinful or that our past is too bad to be forgiven. I'm reminded about a story I ran across about the American statesman Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr actually graduated from Princeton University as a student of theology, but he turned his back on his faith and later he studied law. I read the story about how a granddaughter of Aaron Burr gave her heart to Christ in a revival meeting. That evening she came home and she said to her grandfather, I wish that you were a Christian too. Aaron Burr said to his, to his granddaughter, when I was a young man, 
I also went to a revival meeting. And I felt my need for God's forgiveness and for God's mercy. And I knew that I should give my heart to Christ. But I walked out without doing it. I stood under the stars and I looked up toward the heavens and I said, God, if you don't bother me anymore, I'll never bother you. Then he looked at his granddaughter and said, after I've made that deal with God, it's now too late for me to bother him. Aaron Burr, with a life of chicanery and treason against the United States and against God, felt like he couldn't be forgiven. He felt like his past was too sinful to be overcome. What a tragic mistake. We have to realize that it is not too late. No matter what you have done, God offers you life. He offers you freedom, even from your past. But the salvation of God is not only applicable to the past, but it is also applicable to the future. God's promise to us is life in the future. The righteous by faith will live. We will live with God. We will be in His presence. We will live with God forever throughout eternity. Regardless of what happens in this life, we can yet live. God promises us eternal life. What a hope we have in Jesus Christ. We can spend eternity with Him, life everlasting. But salvation is not only the promise of life everlasting, and it's not only the certainty of forgiveness and freedom from our past, but probably most importantly, salvation by faith means that we can have life today. We can have this now, life in the present. Faith in Jesus Christ is a decision that affects our present life. We can find direction from Him. We can find a purpose for our being. True life in Christ begins now. There was another young man many years after the time of Martin Luther who was also struggling with the Christian life. This young man had felt the call of God upon his life to be a missionary, but he had failed miserably on the mission field. This man came back to his homeland feeling like a failure. God's promises seemed empty to him, too. And he doubted seriously the usefulness or the purpose even of his own life. This young man, even though he had tried to live a life of faith in Christ, struggled with the age-old question, who can be saved? Who is truly righteous? This young man wrote that in the evening of the 24th of May, he went very unwillingly to a Bible study in Aldersgate in London, where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter to nine, while the leader was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, this young man wrote, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone, for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That critical moment in John Wesley's life sparked a revival that ran from one end of England to the other. And the life's work and preaching of John Wesley was founded upon the radical discovery that we have been looking at this evening. The righteous will live by faith. So what about you? Have you made the discovery of life? Have you offered Jesus your whole life? 
We need to come to Jesus just as we are, but we need to give Jesus all of our life just as we are as well. We can't wait for another day. We can't put it off until we feel better about ourselves, and we can't put it off until we feel worse about ourselves. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to place your complete trust in Jesus Christ. This is the day to discover life. Luther realized that truth 488 years ago, and we must realize the same truth today. Paul writes, For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous by faith will live. Amen.